Before you listen to this episode, just a quick word on a special offer. Politics Theory Other is pleased to be an official media partner of Progressive Economics 2022. Brought to you by the Progressive Economy Forum, the event is a one-day festival of debate, discussion and education on the defining issues of modern economics. In a world battered by crises, Progressive Economics 2022 will bring together leading progressive thinkers to debate how we build a radically better economy. Speakers include Grace Blakely, Gargi Bhattacharya, Aaron Bananev, Francesca Bria, James Meadway, Kate Pickett and David Edgerton amongst many others. The event will be held on Saturday, June 11 at the University of Greenwich in London. You can get your tickets today at progressiveeconomyforum.com and all new PTO patrons can get your tickets for free. Sign up as a PTO patron at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other from as little as £1 per month and you'll receive a code you can use to get your free tickets to the event. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Ukrainian filmmaker and writer Alexei Radinsky. We talked about the current situation in Kiev and the popular mood in Ukraine now that a Russian victory seems quite improbable. We went on to talk about Alexei's article, The Case Against the Russian Federation, which appeared in Eflux Journal, and the key features and history of Russian nationalism, and why it is that Vladimir Putin and the clique around him repeatedly misunderstand the political realities of Ukraine and why they have continually overestimated the degree of pro-Russian feeling in the country. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsha Walia. Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilise, criminalise, exploit and expel migrants and refugees. Harsha Walia demonstrates how borders divide the international working class and consolidate imperial capitalist ruling class and racist nationalist rule, cogently mapping the lucrative connections between state violence, capitalism and right-wing nationalism around the world. As Naomi Klein puts it, this is a book of unsparing truth and dazzling ambition, providing readers with desperately needed intellectual ammunition to confront the inherent violence of borders, an enormous contribution to our movements. You can find Border and Rule at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and the US can receive free shipping on orders over £20 or $25 respectively. And now to today's interview. Alexei Radinsky is a filmmaker and writer based in Kiev. His films have been screened at the International Film Festival Rotterdam and the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, amongst many other venues. 
and have received a number of festival awards. In 2008, he co-founded the Visual Culture Research Centre, an initiative for art, knowledge and politics in Kiev. Chapters of his writing have appeared in Proxy Politics, Power and Subversion in a Networked Age, Art and Theory of Post-1989 Central and East Europe, a Critical Anthology, and Being Together Precedes Being. He's also written for Eflux Journal and Tribune magazine. Alexei, you're currently in Kyiv and, and you've been in the country for the duration of the conflict. Could you say something about the situation in, in the city itself at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, the situation in the city of Kyiv is relatively calm and easy compared to what was here before the retreat of the Russian troops uh, that were trying to besiege the city unsuccessfully in the so-called Battle of Kyiv, which they lost in late March. So in the course of the last few weeks, the people of Kyiv, those who have moved out uh, during the siege, are returning en masse basically every day for the last like four weeks. We see a gradual and growing influx of people. And uh, yeah, the city is uh, gradually filling up with cars again and crowds in the streets and all of those uh, things that we know the city for. I have to say that around a month ago, the city looked really great. Like it was almost like a dream city. No traffic jams, much more human and humane, so to say. But now life is definitely going back more like what it was. What would you say is the popular mood at this stage? Because obviously in the initial period, you know, I imagine that many people feared the country simply being overrun, a very rapid Russian victory. That no longer seems to be the case. Many are talking about the possibility of a very slow grinding war with all the horrible implications of that. There's also talk of the prospect of, of Ukraine even defeating Russia and, and forcing Russia out of the country in its entirety, given the scale of military assistance that the country is now receiving from the United States and uh, various European countries. What's your sense of where people are generally at? I think uh, that the mood uh, generally is moderately enthusiastic about yeah, the prospects of the Ukrainian people in their war of liberation, basically against uh, the Russian invaders. Quite early uh, during this war, basically during the first couple of days, I think there was a twofold uh, kind, of, kind of relation to this war. It was clear that the threat of the Russian military has been uh, hugely overrated as soon as they invaded. Yeah, they very quickly proved to be quite incompetent and basically quite helpless in the battlefield. But this was, of course, uh, complemented, this feeling was complemented by a concern that this is not yet the full scale of the force of the Russian army. And, of course, a lot of people were cautious that sooner or later they will get their shit together and... Uh, attack more like in a way that they were expected to attack but this was nowhere to be seen for a very long time now and I think a lot of people and also a lot of analysts who's been kind of fear-mongering with regards of some kind of hidden potentials of this Russian attack I think it becomes clear that this is what it is that the Russian military 
does not really possess any kind of strategically different or any kind of hidden powers yeah, that they haven't revealed yet. So basically what they can do is try to raise uh, cities from the face of the earth because they cannot capture them yeah, like they are doing in Mariupol. But also it seems that even in this kind of barbaric way of warfare, their capacities are quite limited. They basically didn't capture any of the large Ukrainian cities that resisted, with the exception of one large regional center of Kherson, which was overrun basically in the first day of the invasion, which was just too close to Crimea and their line of attack there. So there was a lot of concern and fear with regards to this kind of symbolic date of the 9th of May, which is a mm, so-called victory, victory day, yeah, widely celebrated in Russia as a militaristic and kind of revanchist feast, but also, and there were fears that uh, Putin will officially de- declare war on Ukraine or mobilization or something like that, but of course nothing like that happened, and it also seems that the parade itself and Putin's appearance during this media spectacle was extremely lame. And uh, it seems that this uh, force has been kind of overrated in terms of its military force, but it was completely underrated in terms of its kind of ideological background and its capacity to mobilize its own repressive apparatus by way of exploitation of openly fascist ideology, which unfortunately conceals itself under this kind of allegedly anti-fascist rhetoric. Which is, of course, mm. a, a big because shame. of the legacy of the of the Second World War, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, the legacy of the Second World War is uh, something that we actually have to look at very closely, especially given these attempts to to claim the anti-fascist rhetoric by the openly fascist regime of Putin. One of the biggest historical myths that have to be dispelled is. Uh, the myth that is especially popular in Germany, for instance, and other places in Europe, that says that the Russian army has liberated Germany from the Nazis. This is a very dangerous and uh, sad misconception. Historically speaking, the Russian army never liberated anyone from the Nazis simply because the Russian army did not exist at the time of the Second World War. There was no such thing as the Russian army. There was a Soviet army, the Red Army, yes, which was an internationalist communist force comprised of lots of lots of nations. Of course, the role of Russians was uh, quite big in that army, like ethnic Russians, and no one is questioning that. But this concept of Russian army liberating Europe rather than Soviet army liberating Europe, uh, like parts of Europe, yeah, entails this kind of colonial erasure of the legacies of every other nation that fought on the side of the Soviet Union in the Second World War. Yes, I mean, I I suppose, I mean, all through the Cold War, obviously, it was very common in the West to just use the terms Russian and Soviet as if they were interchangeable, which, as you say, is obviously, you know, extremely inaccurate. Yeah, it's not just inaccurate. I think this is not just an innocent kind of misunderstanding. It's actually, like, using this, this rhetoric is actively supporting Russian colonialism and Russian imperialism towards uh, the nations that's been uh, colonized by a Russian empire and then um, the USSR by centuries. 
and whose role in the Second World War as a result has been greatly diminished and almost forgotten as a result. In the article you wrote for Eflux, you discuss the Russian nationalist myths that are peddled by Vladimir Putin, by the so-called philosopher Alexander Dugin and their fellow travellers. And you write that it is tempting to turn some of those myths against themselves to show the inconvenient truths they distort and discredit and to see how this mythology can be subverted and possibly even redirected towards progressive ends. And you argue in particular that it might be useful to think through Vladimir Putin's claim that Ukraine is just a part of Russia and that Ukrainians effectively are Russians. And in that context, you write that the mere existence of a Ukrainian state separate from Russia poses an existential threat. Can you expand on that point and why it is that Ukraine's very existence is perceived as being so dangerous by Putin and and his supporters and how that relates to their claim that Ukraine and Russia are inextricably bound together? Yeah, thanks for this question. I will start by saying that it is, of course, maybe a bit tricky to try to take over or somehow exploit these extremely ignorant and historical claims about the so-called historical unity of Ukrainian and Russian nations that Putin is following and exploiting. But on the other hand, realistically, I think it's also important not just to deny this illiterate and historical claims, which is an obvious thing to do, and this should be done, yeah, but also go one step further and question what is, like, what's wrong with this Russian part of this equation of this so-called Russian-Ukrainian unity. And so if we try to kind of for just a second, like, enter Putin's mind or the mind of any of his kind of imperialist and uh, neo-colonial kind of uh, cronies, then it, I think, becomes clear that for the person who has convinced themselves that the Russians and Ukrainians are essentially the same nation, it is extremely dangerous for the Ukrainians to be allowed to have something like free and fair elections, right? Because if these people think that Ukrainians are Russians, and Ukrainians are allowed to live in a democracy or, uh, let's say, relative democracy, but definitely a democracy compared to Russia, then it follows from that that this same thing is possible in Russia, yeah? And this is a grave threat to people like Putin and his cronies, yeah? So this also relates to this kind of uh, panicky fear of people's uprising that they kind of... Uh, Putin's cronies... Um, are kind of naming the Russian Maidan uprising scenario, right? So if Ukrainians and Russians in their minds are the same nation and Ukrainians are able to topple authoritarian governments, which uh, we did uh, basically two times uh, during the 21st century, then it follows from that for these people that the same thing can happen in Russia because they think that Russians are the same people which I think is on every level wrong, yeah, it's wrong factually and so on, but also I think there's uh, some kind of perverse truth to that. I think that uh, definitely not just Ukrainians, but also Russians are totally able to 
rebel and to topple their authoritarian governments and of course uh, they also should be able to vote in free and fair elections but of course not for the reason that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are the same it's just every nation every people should be allowed to do that so I would say that in a way the fear of Russian Maidan style uprising is in a way justified even though it is used as a totally paranoid pretext for years and years of really violent counterinsurgency policies and measures by the Russian Federation. The latest of this kind of counterinsurgency, essential and counter-revolutionary measures is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is the counter-revolution at its, at its pure. One of the things I thought when I read that argument that you made was that the advantage of it is that as opposed to perhaps certain liberal perspectives, it, it doesn't require one to completely romanticise Ukraine as some kind of beacon of liberalism and, and openness and, and democracy, because the point is that Ukraine simply being a society with more political contestation than Russia is enough to provoke the enmity of Putin and, and, and other Russian nationalists. And so, as you say, it doesn't need to be a perfect democracy, but just be more democratic to have that effect. Yeah, exactly. I agree. We shouldn't at all be romanticizing Ukraine as a beacon of democracy, like its democracy has always been quite faulty. Yeah, and also I think we don't have to kind of idealize uh, like Ukrainian democracy just because it's much more democratic than, than the Russian one. Because compared to the Russian regime, so many places are more democratic than that. So we don't have to lower the bar that low, yeah. But in a way, I think that especially it's very hard to speak of any kind of proper democracy during wartime. So I have to remind that at the moment uh, Ukraine uh, has a martial law and a lot of, a lot of the civil liberties are limited and it's it's hard not to see why but i would say that speaking of democracy this last two months or two and a half months has been for me personally quite illuminating and quite vital for the understanding of what real democracy is in a way even though this were the two months of the martial law because what happened in Ukraine after, basically on the day of the invasion, was a tremendous and quite unprecedented level of self-organization and also direct political action, which unfortunately in many cases meant, in most cases meant also military action. But it's important to stress that this war is really at this moment fought as people's war of liberation. It's definitely not just the armed forces of Ukraine and those who volunteered to the armed forces of Ukraine are fighting. I could say that basically on every level of society we see a tremendous effort to counter this invasion in every way possible. Yeah, so the mechanisms and also the intensity of self-organization of like really, really wide like circles of people, including, of course, those who do not fight in the front line, is really impressive and amazing. And I'm sure that this is basically what, to a very big extent, what uh, had cancelled uh, like Russians' plans of invasion. I think it would be much easier for them to win over the armed forces of Ukraine had the 
really, really wide-ranging masses of people had not united and joined, basically, this effort. Do you see the war solely in those terms as a war of liberation? Because, of course, Ukraine is receiving a lot of military assistance from the United States and other other NATO powers. And do you think it's reasonable to see two dynamics at once, that it can both be a war of liberation on the part of Ukrainians, but also that it has the potential to become and perhaps may already be a, a proxy war between the United States and other powers and Russia, because it seems reasonable to suppose that people in Washington perceive this situation as one that American imperialism can potentially exploit as well. Yeah, I totally understand your concerns. And I think these concerns, I think, were much more valid before February 24th, the day of the Russian invasion full scale, because since then I have a kind of a problem with the discourse of a proxy war, which I thought was an interesting concept. After the full-scale Russian invasion, if we speak about the proxy war in Ukraine, then I have a hard time figuring out whose proxy is Russia then. I mean, if that's a proxy war, if sure. is yeah. Russia China's proxy? I don't think so. Not yet, at least. Uh, so we could speak about this war or think about this war as a, as a proxy war during the eight years of its progress. And of course, it was also, there were many other aspects to that. But since the full-scale Russian invasion, I think uh, this, this kind of completely uh, changed uh, this calculus, not just in terms of uh, this proxy war level, but also... In terms of uh, this kind of clash of imperialisms, that it doesn't make sense to deny that it exists, but still it also doesn't always make sense to put them on the same, on the same plane, especially in the moment when the Russian Federation has uh, finally and fully evolved into an openly fascist dictatorship that is now waging a fascist war against a neighboring country, and I could uh, go at some lengths explaining why I think this is literally a fascist dictatorship. Uh, but still... Uh, yes, we, I think, we might yeah. come back to that. Yeah, Sure. So in that situation, I think a lot of us on the left will have to have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that the Western imperialism and the US imperialism, however harmful they could be in most other contexts, at this particular moment in history, they are on the side of the anti-fascist struggle against Putin's regime. And we also have to come to terms with the fact that the U.S. imperialism is not always the biggest evil on the globe. And the biggest enemy is not always at home. I think uh, it is particularly like, useful for the people on the left to remember that, yes, there were cases in recent history of your countries where you could legitimately claim that uh, the biggest enemy is at home. This is no longer the case. And... Uh, you know, I think that apart from this really important and uh, big part of leftist identity that is pacifist uh, tradition, yeah, or pacifist thinking, there is also another no less important and no less vital element of leftist identity and thinking, which is anti-fascism. And I don't think that when a real fascist comes, I don't think it's a good idea to overshadow anti-fascism with pacifism. Going back to the Russian nationalist claim that Ukrainian nationality has somehow been artificially constructed, putting to one side the point that all nations are, of course, in some sense, artificial constructs, how is that idea articulated by Russian nationalists? 
in their minds, who created Ukrainian identity and, and to serve what purpose? Okay, so, yeah, I can uh, try to reconstruct uh, some of these uh, lines of thinking which are quite conspiratorial and notorious in every regard. But before that, I would just like to stress that the Russian history of the last uh, several centuries has been largely a history of empire and of imperial politics and of colonial politics, which unfortunately has remained a blind spot of the global post-colonial and decolonial discourse, which is very often focused on uh, the kind of more traditional modes of European, like Euro-Atlantic maritime colonialism, right? So Russian colonialism has been different in the sense that it's never been maritime. It's been colonizing vast expanses of land and the metropoli and the colony were never separated by any kind of ocean and the metropoli and the colony and its colonies were also territorially quite close and ethnically, in some cases, they were also close ethnically, which is not to say that there was no kind of racial dimension to this. Obviously, it was there, especially when it comes to colonization of Turkic uh, peoples of the so-called European uh, part of Russia and so on. But also, like Russian imperialism and colonialism has been very often directed at people of their own skin color, yeah, so to say. So the colonizers and the colonized very often had the same skin color. And their language, in some cases, was quite close, so, like relatively. So, like Russian language and Tatar language, for instance, Tatarstan is obviously one of the colonies of Russia, are quite different, yeah, while like Russian and Ukrainian languages are much closer than Russian and Tatar, for instance. And after centuries of colonization of Ukrainian territories by Russia, which actually started in the 17th century, so it does not really predate uh, such a long time ago. So after a couple of imperial domination of these peoples and lands, Russian imperialists came up with an idea that because the like, Ukrainian language is quite close to Russian and uh, some parts of Ukrainian nation also are culturally close to Russian, then it follows from this that it can be discarded. Why would you speak Ukrainian if you can just speak Russian? In reality, of course, as you mentioned, like every, every modern European, also East European nation came about during the modern times, like partly as a result of deliberate politics by some of the elites or the emergence of the kinds of media and so on. And the modern Russian nation, of course, is no exception to that. It was just an imperial modern nation, whereas Ukrainian modern nation had been divided between uh, different empires in the pre-October period, which, yeah, uh, with all the... Pre-October -pre yeah. 1917. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so on which led this kind of modern conspiratorial thinkers of uh, the Russian far-right and uh, kind of Russian imperialist discourse 
to assume that the Ukrainian identity, like the modern Ukrainian identity, has been deliberately and artificially constructed by some alien Western forces. And there are different options, of course, whom to blame for this artificial construction. And that depends mostly on the, like on the place of the speaker on the far end of the ideological spectrum. So for some people, it's Austro-Hungarians. For probably more radical Russian nationalists, these are simply Poles, uh, because they hate Poles. And for some people, it's just the Jews, plain and simple, who made up the Ukrainian identity just to harm kind of Orthodox Christian Russians. But I should stress that this kind of discourse is really an extremely kind of fringe and like loony part of political thinking in Russia, which surprisingly became totally mainstream. So if you listen to Vladimir Putin, he really sounds like a far-right lunatic when he speaks about history. And these like fringe ideas had really gone central. They took over the so-called political center in Russian Federation. On the question of ideology and, and the radicalization of the regime. So the influence of Alexander Dugin, the Eurasianist pseudo-philosopher, as you describe him, and his so-called traditionalist philosophy, his influence over Putin and his role in the escalation of Russian nationalism has been much commented upon. Could you say something on his ideology specifically and, and the extent of his influence and whether you see him as, as one of many similar thinkers? Because I think in, in the West, he tends to be talked of in isolation. Yeah, I think it's it's actually a problem to speak about Dugin in isolation from the whole discourse or discourses that he represents. I think that gives him too much agency and importance because he's not really an original thinker, yeah, if he can be called a thinker at all. His actual role in the Kremlin at different times of history in the last 20 years has been uh, kind of disputed and it has not always remained the same, it seems. But also, I think, yeah, we don't really have to focus on his personality so much or on personalities at all, because I think that there's also a very clear historical line, kind of a genealogy of, of, of this official ideology of the Kremlin now, which is uh, far-right Eurasianism, but I think this could be just plain and simply called fascism. Let's just name uh, things by their real names. And um, this becomes very clear if we look basically at the authors that inform Putin's regime maybe to a much more profound extent than even Dugin. And I mean, of course, the Russian interwar writer called Ivan Ilyin, who is now sometimes credited as Putin's favorite philosopher. So Ivan Ilyin was basically a kind of religious political thinker whose main idea, I think, uh, was the idea of an authoritarian leader whose authority emanates directly from God rather than from uh, the people. So he really despised the electoral procedures, electoral democracy, and he basically claimed that the real leader of Russia should uh, basically be an emanation of God. Uh, he also saw a kind of uh, theological, very weird uh, mission for the Russian state on the global stage, which was to defeat kind of satanic evil or things like that. 
But one probably most important thing to know about Ivan Elin, rather than his ideas, which are not that fascinating, is the fact that during the interwar period, when he was a Russian emigre in Europe, he was a very open sympathizer of Adolf Hitler and basically of the German Reich. And he remained an open sympathizer of Hitler after 1945, which is, of course, if you look at his ideas, it's not at all surprising. Of course, if you write something like that, then it's logical uh, you would like Hitler. But so then Ivan Ilyin, of course, was banned in the Soviet Union and he died in emigration, I think. But then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, something really strange started to happen with the legacy of Ivan Ilyin, which probably should have been left in the dustbin of history when it, where it belongs. But a group of really powerful Russian politicians and intellectuals started to advocate for his legacy to become recognized in Russia. And uh, it seems that they were quite successful also in uh, establishing kind of hegemony, even, I would say, of this kind of thinking as the official kind of doctrine of the Kremlin as the kind of official, kind of most uh, state-supported philosophy, so to say, of modern Russia. And uh, this really goes up to the head of the Russian state himself, who openly declares that uh, this is really kind of uh, philosophy that he likes, that he also relies on, and that, as we can now see, he is also happy to put it into practice. Regarding that philosophy that you describe and the comparison with fascism of the 20th century, do you regard this radical ideology as having strong popular support in Russia or, or do you see it more as the preserve of Putin and the, and the ruling clique and his sort of ideological outriders? It's very hard to say for sure about the mass appeal and the basically effectiveness of this appeal. First of all, because sociology as a science and as a practice has been destroyed in the Russian Federation. So it's really hard to measure not just, you know, support for kind of Eurasianist ideas, but it's also very hard to measure the real support uh, for the war in Ukraine in Russia. And it's very hard to measure the real support of Vladimir Putin, which is probably much lower than uh, it is claimed, basically, by every study. So it seems that the Eurasianist ideology like, has fallen into a fertile soil of this kind of post-Soviet Russian Federation, which had basically emerged uh, through a history of really kind of nationwide humiliation. We could say just as every other post-Soviet nation, yeah, including Ukraine, which were during the 90s basically punished by the Western institutions and states simply for being communist. Yeah? I mean, the people were punished while the elites could basically uh, loot the industrial legacy of the Soviet Union. So as a result of this extreme, extremely harsh neoliberal policies of the 90s, especially in the Russian Federation, there was a widespread sense of national humiliation combined, of course, with the loss of its former colonies in the former Soviet republics. And I think that it's absolutely fair to compare this uh, situation with the situation of Weimar Germany and the sense of, uh, of national humiliation after Versailles. So I think that the mistakes of Versailles 
with regards to Weimar Germany were absolutely repeated by the West after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was basically the same kind of mistakes, like of punishment of the people. And uh, just as uh, German Nazism grew out of hyperinflation of the 1920s in Germany, or at least was one of the factors that contributed in the same way like Russian fascism of today has emerged out of the hyperinflation of the 1990s that was so widespread at the time. Going back to the article and the argument you make about the way in which Ukraine is so threatening to Putin and, and those around him because of the, the consequences of, of thinking through that idea of Ukraine and Russia as being almost one and the same and so on. So Putin's invasion of Ukraine has, of course, led to a lot of speculation as to what the limits of his ambitions are, whether his goals are restricted to Ukraine or whether he seeks to more thoroughly transform the post-Cold War map of Europe. Is an implication of your argument in the article that Russia's imperial ambitions may be somewhat limited since Poland, for instance, is not necessarily conceived of by Russian nationalists as being as being Russian in the way that, say, that Ukraine is, and therefore there's not the same perceived threat from an independent Polish state? Or, or do you think they have actually quite expansive goals? Yeah, it's very hard to say what are the actual ambitions of Putin and his clique. One thing that we can say for sure is that reality has limited these ambitions quite a bit. Yeah, so these ambitions uh, proved to be like really overgrown and also overrated by every party. So from the early stages of this invasion, it was clear that their, I mean, the Russians' expertise on Ukraine was extremely low quality. They had no idea what's actually going on here. They have been misinformed quite badly by themselves and by their agents here. So they were really thinking they would take Kiev in a couple of days and then kind of go into this full counterinsurgency mode and basically suppress uh, the resistance all over the country. Of course, uh, the reality proved to be exactly the opposite. So they were kind of really assuming they would be met as deliberators by at least some part of Ukrainians. Exactly the opposite happened. Whatever support uh, like Russian Federation would still have among its sympathizers had completely evaporated. It's also curious to know that the regions that suffered the most from a Russian invasion are actually the regions where they still had some support, however small it was. They destroyed themselves, whatever remains of the pro-Russian option they had. So when the bombs are falling on the city like Kharkiv, for instance, where there was some maybe even sizable pro-Russian attitude among uh, the people, of course, this attitude evaporates. In any case, it's already quite clear that what they can achieve is really much, much smaller than even the small-scale version of uh, the ambitions that Putin and his clique might have had. It's not a question of whether they think they're able to overrun Poland or do they think that Poland is a, is a threat. I think that by going into this kind of full-scale war into Ukraine, they have convinced themselves that they are now fighting 
not with Ukraine, but basically with the so-called collective West. Yeah, it seems that Putin's army and Putin's uh, propaganda has convinced and convincing others that in Ukraine they are not fighting Ukrainian people and they are not fighting with the Ukrainian army, but they are fighting directly with NATO or that they are fighting directly with the US. So in their eyes, this is definitely a proxy war, but also given, I would say, quite limited and quite still, I would say, quite cautious support that Ukraine was getting, at least in the early stages of war from the West militarily. Now, of course, it's changing, but during the first stages of this war, it seems that, yeah, it was basically fought by the two main powers on Ukrainian side, Ukrainian army and Ukrainian people. And uh, when it became really clear that this authentic resistance will either be totally massacred by the Russians or needs to be supported in some way, then some kind of real support came. Which, yeah, of course, is still a very far cry from what the Russian propaganda is telling us about, uh, you know, NATO fighting here in Ukraine. It seems that for them, it's not a matter of overrunning more kind of more countries. It's a matter of just kind of being able to be in this kind of self-indulgent narcissistic mode of being sure that they are fighting NATO now without actually kind of going into a real war with NATO because this one they know they probably lose. If they do recognize that it's a war that they're likely to lose, what would potentially be an exit strategy for them? How do they end the war if they're going to be defeated? How do they end the war in such a way that can save some face, that can ensure Putin's continued rule? Because surely that's going to be a great worry to them that if they are very clearly seen to have been defeated within Russia, then then they risk their overthrow. Yeah, this is uh, a very good question. This is the biggest question of this war. And it seems that deliberately or not, Putin has entered this war without any exit strategy. Maybe because of lack of strategic thinking, maybe because of stupidity, but maybe also deliberately, yeah, to not to have an exit strategy and not to have this option for a kind of compromise, yeah, because it seems that uh, the stakes for him personally are too high. And as a result, I mean, like truly there is no exit strategy for them. But this also leads to an understanding that this war has a bit bigger stake than simply the survival of the Ukrainian state. I think the real stake of this war is the future of the Russian state and the future of the Russian Federation in case it is still able to exist in uh, the future. It seems that the real end to this war will also be the end of Putin. And this, I think, this goes both ways. I think if something happens to Putin and he's no longer around, uh, the war will be stopped quite quickly, at least this stage of of the war. But also I have little hope for the long-lasting and real peace after this war as long as Putin stays in power and basically as long as not just Putin stays in power but the system that he has created remains intact, which means that uh, that basically it seems that only a revolution in Russia is able to stop this war.
In the article you wrote for Eflux, you argue that when it came to Russian foreign policy, aside from Ukraine, Putin had seemed to be, as he was frequently described, a, a pretty savvy political operator. Russia had seemed to be able to punch above its economic weight internationally. But you argue that its dealings with Ukraine, not just the invasion, but more generally have been disastrous, precisely because Russia acts, as you say, as if Ukraine were Russia, and is therefore just unable to perceive the country in any sort of, you know, halfway objective manner. And the most obvious illustration of that, of course, is, as you described, the actual invasion plan, which seems to have been predicated on this belief that Ukrainians would either welcome the Russian forces or would be very easily cowed. But I wonder what are some of the other examples of that dynamic of Russia's inability to properly perceive the political situation in in Ukraine? Some examples perhaps from before the invasion. Yeah, sure. So basically, Ukrainian history of the last 30 years, yeah, the independence period, is basically history of Russian failures to meddle and interfere with Ukrainian politics, which were, of course, not always failures as such. They were, like, these efforts proved to be very toxic for Ukrainian politics, for Ukrainian society, and uh, so on. So just to give a couple of more obvious examples, so basically the Russians were for many years kind of trying to install a pro-Russian, so to say, president or uh, someone that they could control or at least trust. Yeah, and the most notorious example of that was their bet on Viktor Yanukovych, who was twice convicted criminal gangster and in 2004 he was like almost made the president by way of massive electoral fraud which led to something that's known as orange revolution which overturned this stolen election and at that time it was kind of uh, puzzling and almost perplexing for a lot of us here in ukraine like how stupid choice that was like how would you bet on someone like that like a really notorious uh, person with so heavy links with organized crime like he was seen as totally unelectable by a really big part of of the population but for some weird reason the russians had convinced themselves that no, he's electable, we can just, the electoral fraud and technologies they have, they thought were so, could be so massive that he could be made president. This failed, uh, 2014, and the military occupation of Crimea and the igniting of a pro-Russian insurgency in uh, East Ukraine was even more catastrophic failure, because at that point, after the uprising at Maidan, when there was actually some crisis of legitimacy within the Ukrainian government, the Kremlin had also kind of calculated and convinced itself that this so-called Eastern Ukrainians, yeah, or like Russian speakers in Ukraine, which, I mean, the Russian media were convincing them and themselves and the Russians that being a Russian speaker in Ukraine means that you support Russia or means that you support Putin, which was never the case. So in 2014, when they tried to launch the surprising in uh, the Donbass, this actually turned out to be so marginal and so small that it was almost evaporating by the time when the Russians actually had to send their 
operatives first and then the troops and uh, this I can say as the first hand witness who's been uh, documenting and filming during this kind of uh, counter uprising known as Anti-Maidan like in March and April 2014 in uh, the Donbass region. Their bet was strong and uh, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians never showed up to this uprising, to this um, campaign at any significant way. So this was definitely their strategic failure, uh, yeah, which strangely did not teach them anything. And by 2022, they convinced themselves again that they will be met as liberators, not just in East Ukraine, but also in a place like Kiev, uh, for instance, which is actually hard to comprehend. It sounds almost fantastic, yeah, that someone could have this idea, but it just shows the level of detachment of the Kremlin elites from the rest of the world. Going back to the point about how to characterize Putin's regime, you've obviously heard described their ideology as, as a species of fascism. Can you explain why you would want at this point to use that term rather than to describe it as a form of authoritarianism or military style rule or or Bonapartist is obviously another term that is frequently used. And also, if Putin's Russia is indeed fascist, what kind of fascism is it? Because obviously we can look at the example of, say, Mussolini's Italy versus Nazi Germany. And in the case of Italian fascism, there was a less central to it was the vicious racism of Nazi Germany, even though that obviously wasn't absent and Italian colonial policy was extremely brutally racist towards the later phases of the war. Obviously, there was an increasing sort of cleaving towards Nazi Germany's racial policies. But yeah, where would you see it on that question? And why do you think fascism is the appropriate term? Yeah, I think it uh, could be argued on many levels that uh, fascism is actually an appropriate term to describe what's going on in Russia. And a couple of these levels I've already spoke to. Yeah, so there's this level of outright reference and outright outright reliance on the Russian fascist ideology of the interwar period being now an official ideology of Kremlin. But had that not been enough, and the historical parallel with the fascism as the result of this kind of perceived national humiliation of the kind that happened with the Weimar Germany and also happened in Russia in the 90s. Apart from that, I think one important feature and crucial feature of fascism I would describe as the denial of the right to exist uh, to a certain political group. Yeah? or to a certain ethnic group. And with regards to Putin's fascism, I think it's very clear that their invasion is based on the denial of a right to exist to Ukrainians, those Ukrainians who do not accept that they're actually Russians. It seems clear that uh, one of the goals of this invasion is to exterminate basically that part of Ukrainian population that doesn't accept that they are Russians, yeah? to exterminate uh, the part of Ukrainian population that thinks that they are Ukrainian. And this is corroborated by a lot of evidence from the invasion that's going on, starting from the alleged uh, shooting lists that were exposed by the intelligence of the West and uh, the rest of the Western intelligence with regards to Russian invasion proved to be surprisingly right. Yeah, so apart from that, yeah, a kind of claim of this denial of existence which has been 
kind of laid out very clearly in Putin's uh, televised uh, speech uh, prior to the invasion. This uh, denial of the right to exist is actually confirmed by what the Russian military is doing and was doing in the territories it had been occupying, which is mass executions, mass murders, mass rapes, and uh, forced deportations of millions of people from Ukraine to Russia, from uh, uh, Russia-occupied territories of Ukraine. And uh, this brings us to another important kind of sign of fascist politics and not just fascist discourse, which is uh, genocide. And I know that it's, uh, we're entering like a thin ice here when talking about genocide and this uh, concept should never be used without very good grounds to use it, of course. And there's a lot of debate, not just on the level of political commentary, but on the level of serious law discourse whether what's going on in the Russian occupied territories of Ukraine amounts to genocide. There's certainly something called concern of genocide, yeah, that's around. And this is basically, as I unfortunately had the chance to learn, is also a kind of judicial kind of law term. So in case to establish the fact of genocide or to claim that uh, there's a genocide first, the concern of genocide has to be raised. And it is being raised now by a lot of renowned international scholars and international organizations. And I've been speaking to a couple of, of lawyers, of criminal lawyers who investigate uh, the war crimes, who have a very big and proven record of investigating the war crimes and the crimes of genocide. And what I learned from them was really striking. These specialists in war crimes claim that there's definitely concern of genocide. It's going to be very difficult to prove in court, though it seems. But for them, at least, what is the most pertinent and relevant argument for the concern of genocide in Ukraine is to establish the link between Russian propaganda that is openly calling for the genocide of Ukrainians now for several months, and the activities of the Russian troops on the ground. And uh, when I realized that this is the biggest uh, issue, I thought, okay, yeah, I mean, it's going to be really hard to prove, but this is genocide, because for, at least for us here on the ground in Ukraine, it's very clear that the calls for genocide that's been voiced in Russian propaganda quite openly in the state media of the Russian Federation during the last months are having a direct impact on what's going on on the ground with the Russian troops and their actions. So, okay, that much for genocide, maybe. But if, of course, as for the second part of your question on where to situate uh, this fascism and what kind of fascism it is. It seems that it's hard, of course, to claim the exact parallel, but I think that the Russian Federation is not yet actually on the level of Nazi Germany of 1939, but it seems that it could probably be now evolving on this fascist trajectory on the level of Nazi Germany at around uh, 36, 37, maybe 38. Of course, maybe the 
invasion of Ukraine as they envisaged it would be analogous to Germany's annexation of Czechoslovakia in 1938. But as we now know, they failed, I mean, the Russians. And this also, I think, means that uh, this Putinist fascism still can be stopped, at least now. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.